This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. I would say the main driver for cardiometabolic conditions is insulin resistance. But even saying that, I think we need to look even a little bit further upstream to see what's causing the insulin resistance in the first place. And that's really the obesity epidemic. And what would happen is that I would just go on diets. You know, I'd, I'd, in my head, my story was, oh my God, I'm too fat. I can't fit into any clothes. I'll go on a diet and uh, I'll do that for 10 weeks and I'll lose 10 kilos. And, you know, and I'll, I'll just then go back to my life. And I did this for like 20 years. I was a really good dieter. Especially if you've got the patient in front of you who is telling you that it's impossible for them to lose weight, no matter what they do. And especially if it's central obesity or overweight, it's just a key indicator. And that is why I'm very adamant around testing insulin for these type of clients. This is Bioconcepts Between Clinical Minds, the podcast that's open-minded enough to take in all sides of a clinical story. You'll hear from researchers, doctors, naturopaths, nutritionists and patients. We look at common clinical presentations through a different lens. It's open, frank and sometimes controversial. Nothing is off limits. Will it change the way you treat? We'll leave that up to you. In season two of Bioconcepts Between Clinical Minds, we look at cardiometabolic health. We talk to experts in the field who will take you into their clinics and share their experience. I'm Tony Chambers, and this is Bioconcepts Between Clinical Minds. In this episode of Between Clinical Minds, we'll dive into insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes, the drivers and the testing considerations with dietitian Robbie Clark, GP Dr. Lucy Burns and naturopath Karen Squires. Dr. Lucy Burns is a general practitioner turned low-carb, real food advocate, helping thousands of people turn their diet and their health outcomes around. She's a self-confessed reformed chocoholic and expert dieter. Spent a lot of time doing general practice and like a lot of people, I think, had no real concept on how to manage my stress or emotions or a lot of those Things and, you know, clearly identified as a comfort eater and a stress eater and totally loved chocolate and ate a fair bit of it from time to time. And what would happen is that I would just go on diets. You know, I'd, I'd, in my head, my story was, oh, my God, I'm too fat. I can't fit into any clothes. I'll go on a diet and uh, I'll do that for 10 weeks and I'll lose 10 kilos and, you know, and I'll, I'll just then go back to my life. And I did this for like 20 years. I was a really good dieter. I was really strict when I dieted, but there was always this end of diet day was always there. And I was never doing anything that was kind of sustainable. It was just really rigid dieting. And then one day, one week, one month, it actually, it actually stopped working. Like I was doing all the things that I thought was helpful for dieting. You know, I was eating 
you know, I'd, got, I'd stopped all the lollies, I'd stopped all the sugar, I was eating lots of, um, you know, whole foods, but fairly high carbohydrate foods, and I just wasn't losing any weight. And I just thought, oh, this is rubbish. And so then I'd oscillate between this, this isn't working, it's rubbish, I'm not doing it, to, you know, going back to some sort of restriction and feeling pretty miserable. And Look, I I stumbled across low carb as a concept via a very clever friend of mine who is also a doctor and she was just just looking so well. We were on holidays and I'm there piously eating my carrot sticks and she just looked really healthy and I just said, what what are you doing? What's going on? So then she talked to me about low carb and at the time I'm going, oh, I'm not doing that. That sounds like rubbish. And I just was really quite resistant. And then I just sort of thought, maybe I'll go and get some bloods done. You know, maybe I'll just see what's happening because we have a family history of type 2 diabetes. And, you know, I was pretty surprised to see that I had fatty liver, that I had high circulating insulin and that I was pre-diabetic. And I thought, ah. So then I went back to sort of revisit how does does low carb fit into that picture and recognise that that by having such high circulating insulin, that was part of the reason why even though I cut out junk food, I wasn't able to lose weight. We know now though, don't we, that that calories in, calories out model just is the wrong target for weight loss. So can you tell me what the right targets are? Yeah, so certainly in, and and I think what we need to to recognise is that the prevention of obesity is different to the treatment of obesity. So once people develop obesity, and I certainly was, you know, I was 25 kilos heavier than I was now, lots of, you know, um, abdominal um, adiposity. And when that happens, you get derangement in your metabolic hormones. So you you develop insulin resistance. So your poor little pancreas is out there trying to metabolize all its glucose and it will do whatever it does. Like it's such a good organ. It says, you know, right, I I need to keep blood sugar, you know, between four and six, give or take. So I'm going to make as much Mm. insulin as possible in order to do that. And it will just keep doing it sometimes to really high levels. And Often people will go and have their blood tests and they'll be focusing on their fasting glucose or their hemoglobin A1C, which is still quite normal despite having massive insulin levels. And lots of doctors in particular don't check insulin. So the problem with insulin, even though it's a great hormone, it's also a fat storing hormone, which I often talk about. I must have been asleep in medical school when we we mentioned this because I never really recognised that by inhibiting lipolysis, you, you know, you, you, you can't break down insulin while you have high levels. So then what happens is people can't access their fuel. So they've got all this beautiful stored fuel. It's all sitting there. And I use my lovely woodshed analogy because I think for practitioners to be able to explain insulin resistance to lay people who are their patients, it's really quite tricky. Like you kind of start mm. getting and they just sort of zone out and they don't, and you know, you do this great explanation and then they go, so have I got ty- have I got diabetes? And they just get, <laughs> they get them mixed up. So I often just talk about this idea that if you imagine, and, it, and it's very simplified. So, you know, just, I think bear, bear in mind that this is what I, how I explain it to patients. If we imagine that our body is like a fireplace, and we've got two sorts of fuel to run it. We've got kindling, which runs, which burns quickly and hot. So that's like our carbohydrates. And we've got logs, which are our fat stores. So they're slow burning and last a lot longer. If you imagine that in it, particularly our current society, we're very carb driven. We eat a lot of carbohydrates and a lot of people eat a lot of processed carbs as well. So it's not, 
you know, it's across the board. So we have a big pile of kindling, but we don't, uh, and so we're burning that. And then when we run out of that and we go to get a log, there's no logs next to our fireplace. So you do this little toddle out to your woodshed, your metaphorical woodshed, try and open the door because you can see all these beautiful logs lined up there and the door is locked and that lock is insulin. So it doesn't matter what you do, you cannot access that woodshed until you've lowered your insulin. So that's that then that was like a an epiphany for me and in fact my first little business was called Epiphany Medical Weight Loss because I just thought oh my god but anyway <laughs> I've, I've sort of rebranded from there but I just think that um for a lot of people that penny still hasn't dropped that you know doctors will in particular we will often ask our patients tell them go and lose weight you know they'll go and see a surgeon because they need a knee replacement who says come back when you've lost 20 kilos and it's nobody's People aren't trying to be fat. They're, they're, nobody wants to be overweight. But if you don't give them the right tools, they'll do what I did, which is cut out all the sugar and stuff, but still fail and feel miserable, given, throw in the towel. Maybe we should set it up by asking if you can just kind of go through the hormones that we really need to, to consider when we're looking at weight. So, I mean, there's lots that we can look at and lots that we can test for. My personal view is that, I mean, insulin is the master hormone. Once it's sort of out of whack, then all the others follow. But so insulin being a driver of fat storage. Leptin is our other hormone that we end up with leptin resistance. So leptin is a hormone made by our fat cells. It's meant to tell our brain, listen, we've got plenty of fuel on board. Don't, you know, you're not hungry. Um, And what happens is that as it gets higher, it's meant to tell our brain that we're not hungry or that we're full. So it's our satiety hormone. But the problem is we develop resistance to it. So it gets higher and higher and higher, but we can't hear it. So people often with insulin resistance have leptin resistance and literally don't feel full. So people get, you know, they, they run out of fuel. So they have, you know, multiple reasons for being hungry. They run out of fuel and they can't access their fuel and their leptin can't tell them when they're, when they're full. So those two are really important. There's another hunger hormone called ghrelin. And again, we t- tend not to test for those ones, but ghrelin is a hormone that that tells our brain we're hungry. Um, and I think, I, again, I sometimes wonder what I was doing, but I used to think that hunger was, you know, you got hungry when your stomach was empty. Like it kind of makes <laughs> sense. You kind of go, yeah, well, my stomach's empty, therefore I'm hungry. Mm-hmm. But actually it's very much hormonally driven. And for a lot of people, they wake up in the morning and they're not super hungry, but you can sure, you know, you can sure bet that their stomachs are empty. So again, it's hormonal and, you know, ghrelin has lots of things that interact and, and cause that to rise as well. So, you know, and then I think the others that drive hunger and satiety um, that are the incretin hormones are super important as well. And I mean, we're discovering them all the time. This is what's so sort of amazing. Mm. But yes, definitely you know, for lots and lots of other little little neuropeptides and things like that that are involved. But you know what I think, and you mentioned cortisol before, I just kind of look at it and we can go really basic. You can get really complicated if you want to, but I just look at basics and I go, when we put people um, on steroids for whatever medical conditions they might need to, they develop central obesity and type 2 diabetes. So, you know, prednisolone increases the risk so cortisol increases your risk of central obesity and type 2 diabetes. 
when we put people on insulin to manage their type 2 diabetes, they gain weight. They just do. And we say to them, don't, don't gain weight. It's like ridiculous. It's like, you know, having an empty, a hole in the bucket and telling the bucket, don't lose water. You're giving them hormones and medications that cause those conditions. Karen Squires is a naturopath who's passionate about her specialty, cardiometabolic health. For her, insulin resistance is the key to metabolic health and disease. I would say the main driver for cardiometabolic conditions is insulin resistance. It's really the main driver behind it. But even saying that, I think we need to look even a little bit further upstream to see what's causing the insulin resistance in the first place. And that's really the um, obesity epidemic, which is in turn caused by a combination of diet and lifestyle factors mostly, but also, you know, environment and genetics. Uh, We know that diet and lifestyle is responsible for around 80% of chronic disease and it's, it's the rising levels of obesity, the obesity epidemic that the evidence is is showing as the greatest influence in insulin resistance. And obviously diet choices as well that goes hand in hand with that, as in high fructose, glucose, you know, carbohydrate diet. Yeah, dietary choices, it's really the high energy processed and ultra processed foods combined with a sedentary lifestyle that's really behind driving that obesity epidemic. And then insulin resistance. So can you kind of talk about that mechanism? Insulin resistance is is really at that intersection of weight gain and adiposity and the dysglycemias. And what's behind these is, you know, environment and behaviour such as diet and lifestyle choices and genetics to a degree. I say genetics to a degree because it's really multifactorial and, you know, it's the complex interaction of all of these things. And 80% of this is driven by diet and lifestyle. So that's why I kind of say genetics to a degree. But the connection with insulin resistance and, and cardiometabolic conditions is that it The insulin resistance itself causes high levels of insulin in the blood, which in turn makes weight loss more difficult, you know, as it's a pro-fat storage hormone. So insulin resistance causes that abnormal adiposity. So it's not just more weight, but it's where it's located. And it also causes what we call ectopic lipid problems like non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, fatty gallbladder, fatty pancreas, endothelial dysfunction, oxidative stress and inflammation. And we know that it's that subacute but chronic levels of inflammation that drive other inflammatory processes in the body and increases the risk of cardiovascular disease and diabetes. And what it also does too is it produces changes in satiety hormones and satiety centres in the brain affecting eating behaviour. So even after people have lost weight, there can be you know, those maladaptive responses in satiety, hormones and energy expenditure can still remain and that can drive the weight back up. And we often see our patients, you know, in that vicious cycle. You did mention it's not just weight gain, but it is where it is located. And it's that central adiposity, isn't it, that we're talking about there? The abnormal adiposity, so it's especially that visceral adiposity, which is the fat concentrated around the middle. It's a driving force for insulin resistance and inflammation, leading to prediabetes and type 2 diabetes. 
So I'll now explain how being overweight or obese can impair glucose or insulin metabolism. And I hope your listeners are ready for a biochemistry lesson because that's what it really all comes down to. This is Robbie Clark. He's a functional dietitian, exercise scientist, and ex-elite gymnast. So fat, which is adipose tissue as we know it, can release cytokines. And these are cell signaling molecules, such as tumor necrosis factor or um, alpha, which is TNF-alpha. And these guys interfere with the action of insulin. And in this context, the cytokines are referred to adipokines. And it's the immune cells, such as macrophages, that can infiltrate adipose tissue and drive further inflammatory processes that contribute to insulin resistance. So this macrophage infiltration can be lessened through weight loss. And so that's the whole goal of and reasons why we try to get people to lose weight to reduce this inflammatory processes. And just any obesity also downregulates the expression of adiponectin, adiponectin, and um, this is what promotes insulin sensitivity under healthy individuals. And leptin is another key hormonal metabolic regulator that is absolutely affected in obesity. And leptin normally increases um, energy expenditure and reduces food intake, or as we've known as our fullness hormone. And however, obesity causes resistance to the benefits that of leptin. So that is a hormone in itself that tends to be neglected or overlooked in a lot of these processes as well, which I do some a lot of leptin testing. So you often have, obviously, leptin resistance and insulin resistance working hand in hand. They can be, definitely. And like I said, because it's not tested often, Mm -hmm. um, it can be overlooked. So the issue of inflammation-induced leptin resistance results in reduced function of the hormone itself. And what's more, the leptin pathways are self-regulating, meaning that persistent increases in the hormone can result in a down-regulation of the receptor. So it's that inflammation we talked about earlier, how important that is, also initiates that HPA axis activation, contributing to further um, undesirable increases in leptin release and also cortisol elevations, which is known to be associated with dysfunctional eating, sleep disturbances, and also increased abdominal um, adiposity. What do you do with a person who who comes in and and they've got insulin resistance? There are some obvious markers, uh, functional pathology markers, such as fasting blood glucose levels. Um, But again, we talked about how that is not a great indicator. So it's just giving you an overview of what's going on right then. If the client hasn't fasted either, you know, that that's problematic in itself. So if it's just a random measurement, that's not ideal. So that's when we bring in maybe the glycated hemoglobin or the HbA1c, which a lot of people know it as. And that is almost like a snapshot as what's been going on with your blood sugars over a three-month span. And then I like to obviously include insulin. And then I might do some urine microalbumin, which is also known as the albumin-creatinine ratio. And this is usually performed annually 
in people who have been diagnosed with diabetes and also hypertension because it's screening for kidney or cardiovascular disorders as well. And then if I need to do out-of-pocket expenses, um, I will just do the HOMA IR, which is the homeostasis model assessment of insulin resistance. And that is the standard measure of insulin resistance and is calculated using the fasting blood glucose and the fasting insulin levels. Karen Squires. I get a high sensitive CRP to have a look at that systemic inflammation. Uh, and the other kind of standard ones, I get a, a vitamin D, you know, uh, pancreatic B cells uh, rely on vitamin D. So I like to look at, we know vitamin D is amazing for so many different uh, health parameters, but um, it's also indicated in, in um diabetes and cardiometabolic issues, lipid studies, of course, to have a look at what's um, going on with blood fats, iron studies even, uh, just have a look at ferritin levels and that inflammatory kind of response that might be included there. And sometimes I'll go on and do a, depending on what the blood lipids come back like, I may then request a cardiovascular extensive test to have a look at those LDL subfractions, which really lets us look at the, you know, the degree of atherosclerotic kind of blood fats are, are present and what the particle size is, mm. because those smaller particle sizes can actually, you know, enter into the endothelial lining and, and cause an inflammatory response there. So they're kind of some of the the usual ones that I get are HbA1c it's look it's a good test to get as a you know we use it as a, like a predictor of diabetes complications longer term but it is an average so as we know with averages you can have some lows and you can have some highs and when it's averaged out it actually looks okay uh, doesn't actually tell us where the highs and the lows have been but it's still it's still a good marker to have a look at. And fasting blood glucose, as I said, I always try to get that with insulin because it's like from the research I've done as well, fasting blood glucose looks like it's actually the least informative among, among the <laughs> glycemic parameters that we look at because it often corresponds to the lowest glucose level during the day. So it's reflecting that fasting nocturnal <laughs> period when there's no intake of food. You know, but most people, where, where the problem is, is most people are spending most of their time in postprandial states that are often dysregulated in, in blood sugar issues. So, and we know that the endothelial damage is occurring when blood sugar levels are high, independent of some of these normal parameters that we have a look at. Mm. But besides blood markers, you know, there's some really routine tests we we can and we should be doing in clinic you know face to face with our clients if, if we're seeing clients face to face such as blood pressure um, height weight ratio waist measurement body composition analysis if you've got access to that even urinary ph uh, low urinary ph has been shown to be associated with uh, metabolic disorders as well so that's an easy thing to do in clinic I've also just started using a little test called an omega-3 index test, which looks at the amount of EPA and DHA in red blood cells to determine what level of fish oil to prescribe, you know, mm. so where what percentage 
of their red blood cell membrane Mm. is omega-3s and then we can dose accordingly. But I'd say one of the things test-wise, one of the things that I've been using a lot over, especially the past year, is getting my clients to wear a continuous glucose monitor to track their responses to foods and overnight Mm. fasting. And that way we can make a more targeted, you know, dietary and lifestyle recommendations to them. And how are you finding that it's fairly new that you're doing that? How are you finding that? I'm finding it fantastic. I absolutely love using continuous glucose monitors. They have been found to increase, well, I've even noticed it as well, but they have been found to increase patient compliance because patients can readily see the impact of their choices and also the impact of the medicines I've prescribed to them on their levels of blood sugar and and things like Mm. that. And I find it really empowers clients because when they start to see the responses of their body to certain food choices or even exercise, you know, they can make an informed decision about do I really want to eat that four serves of pasta for dinner? Maybe I'll have one serve Mm. um, and I'll have a salad before it kind of thing. So I think it's, it's really empowering and the information is so useful. As I said, it, um, you know, with things like HbA1c, it's an average, whereas with a continuous glucose monitor, we can see what's happening during the night. Their fasting blood glucose in the morning when they wake up and go for their blood test might be absolutely fine, but we'll be able to see that during the night it wasn't so fine and during the day perhaps things aren't so good either and we can make adjustments for this and reduce that being prone to the endothelial damage, which is going to drive the cardiovascular issues. And how long do you get your patients to wear those continuous glucose monitors for? I get them to wear it for two weeks initially. Um, They last for up to two weeks. They take a measurement of blood glucose every minute of the day. So it stores the, mm. yeah, and the the, glu- the blood glucose device that's on the arm, that stores eight hours of information. So they just need to scan. You can download an app on their phone. Um, they just need to scan it at least once every eight hours. So that's only three times in a 24-hour period. Mm. And that then captures that information and the sensor on the arm can just continue to store up to eight hours again. So I get them to do it initially for two weeks. Then we sit down and have a big discussion about what's actually going on because they can record in there as well what they ate and when. And so we can have a look at how their body is responding to that at various times during the day. Also the impact of exercise on, on blood sugar levels. Then we put together a plan around that. Mm. And then I will get them to, like I see them in between, of course, but up to about three or four months later, maybe two months, I'll get them to wear it again after they've implemented those dietary and lifestyle changes. And then they actually get to see how those changes that they've made have not only had an impact on their blood test results, but also what we call time in range. They'll see that their time in range in a healthy blood sugar range has improved Mm -hmm. and it's the time in range now that the research is showing us is actually more important than a HbA1c for example. Karen what are we looking for when you when you mentioned time in range like what is the time in range that we're looking for? So the time in range with continuous glucose monitors is um, the range they set is between 3.9 and 10 
millimole per litre. And the timing range within that needs to be 70% or above to be considered timing range. Okay. However, that 3.9 to 10 may sometimes need to be narrowed in certain situations for some people. It depends on their level of complications. So I will actually narrow that range for some people. Okay. But the timing target needs to be 70% or greater. That's what's out in the scientific research. I'd actually like to see it at least above 80%. And I guess as well, it's it's everyone has individual responses to different foods, doesn't it? So you could make a prescription for someone, like as in a dietary prescription for someone, but there might be some elements in there that they specifically respond more to than others. So it is. it becomes more individualised, doesn't it, Karen? It definitely becomes more individualised. For example, I mean, you've hit the nail on the head, for example, there are foods that we, you know, term as healthy. So say, for example, it might be oats. Well, we think of oats as a really healthy food, you know, low in fat and high in soluble fibre and everybody should be eating oats, for example. But oats with some people will actually spike their blood sugar levels. So... If these people don't want to give up the oats, then we have to think of a way of dulling that spike for them by by changing what they have with those oats, for example. Or they may actually say, you know, I actually don't, oh, I'm just eating them because my partner eats them, so I'd prefer to have an egg, you know, and then great, that's fine. So some of the foods that we, we naturally think of as healthy, and it's not that they're not healthy, it's just that if somebody's got a metabolic response to that food and there is a metabolic um, response to everything we eat in our bodies but if that is causing some issues and we're combining that with family history and a large waist measurement and you know some abdominal obesity um, then it is an issue it is an issue and we need to make changes and I've also found that in some people for example where oats don't cause a spike, it might five years later as their lifestyle changes, as their weight they increase, you know, as um, just natural ageing because as we age, we do become naturally a little bit more insulin resistant. So as we age, we need to change things up as well. Dr. Lucy Burns also relies on physical examination. So family history and those sorts of things that would be are obvious. And then clinically, you know, you'll see somebody who has abdominal, you know, all their weight is stored around their middle. But also the other thing that particularly for insulin resistance is skin tags. So people get excess skin tags and it is often the first sign of their insulin resistance. They're very severe insulin resistance. They can get some um, brown staining, you know, of their skin and... Uh, my brain has just completely forgotten what that's called. But uh, <laughs> it's quite common, again, with severe <laughs> resistance. Um, and I've certainly seen that in a young guy. He was only in his 30s, so it's not uncommon. People will get dark staining in their armpits, groin under their breasts if they're female, um, and certainly around their neck and across their forehead. So then, I mean, one of my favourite tests to order is um, an insulin curve. And I don't do this if somebody is already eating a low-carbohydrate diet because it's A, inaccurate, and B, makes them feel terrible. But the reason I do this is because sometimes their fasting insulin can still be relatively normal. 
But what we want to see is what what does their insulin do in response to a standardised amount of carbohydrate? So in this case, our case is 75 gram load. And, you know, in in an ideal world, the perfect, remember, and I'm sure your listeners all know that sometimes blood tests will give you a reference range, which is not necessarily the optimal range. It's the average range for our society. So, you know, an optimal range, again, using Australian figures is, you know, fasting insulin under 12, preferably single figures, at one hour around about 45, and then at two hours around about 30. So these are the insulin numbers. But honestly, I I see many numbers where the insulin is, the first hour is 100, and then rather than being an upside down U, it continues to climb. So at two hours, it could be 250, 300, 400. These are people who don't have type 2 diabetes and metabolically people would think they're pretty normal because their glucose is good and the hemoglobin A1C is maybe about 5.7, certainly nowhere near the diabetic range, but they're clearly metabolically unwell. She will also test full thyroid markers and use the results to help motivate patients. People will sometimes say, why do you bother doing it? You know, you know they're going to be insulin resistant if they've got skin tags in there and they've got central adiposity. And it's because people will respond to visual graphics. So I will graph out what their pancreas is doing, how their pancreas is trying to keep them safe from diabetes, how hard it's having to work. And that is, again, then part of your motivating interviewing tool that you can say, see what's happening here, see what's happening under the hood. You can't see it. Nobody can see it just walking around. But under the hood, this is what your body is doing. So I actually think the insulin curve, like I just think it is such a wonderful, wonderful test. And what you then do is you you then give your patient the options of what can they do about this? this? Because that's what some people go, well, you can't do anything about it. And that's total rubbish. You can do lots of things about it. Um, but it gives them that just really big visual cue. Next week, we'll continue the conversation on insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes, focusing on treatment considerations with dietitian Robbie Clark, GP Dr Lucy Burns and naturopaths Dr Brad McEwen and Karen Squires. Thank you for listening. We hope this podcast engaged and empowered you. And thank you to all of our experts. You can read more information on each of them on our website, bioconceptsengage.com.au. If you enjoyed this episode of Between Clinical Minds, please refer a friend and share the love. To continue the conversation, you can contact us at bioconceptsengage.com.au, where community is more than a concept. 